Hello? Yes, I am, as it happens. Why do you ask? Oh, really? Well, I cannot disagree with that assessment. I have heard of some disturbance in the city. I was examining information on what I believe may be an ancient Egyptian god by the name of Nyarlathotep. Does that mean anything to you? I see. What was its name? A-Z-A-T-H... Azathoth? Of of, of course, I won't say it again. Where are you? Very well. Yes, then I will catch the next steamship possible, and I will meet you in Arkham. Hello, and welcome to Once Upon a Die. My name is David A. Xavier, and this is a podcast about board games that tell stories, are great for a solo player, or both. This is episode one. Today's game, Arkham Horror. First published by Chaosium in 1987, I have used the Fantasy Flight Edition, released in 2005, designed by Richard Lonius and Kevin Wilson. This episode is based on a single game played solo with no expansions. Harvey Walters, the Professor, Joe Diamond, the Private Eye, and Kate Winthrop, the Scientist, face off against Azathoth, the Blind Idiot God. Warning, there are some graphic descriptions in this episode. Now let's get the dice rolling. That telephone call marked the first time the idea of travel to Arkham had entered my head. I had journeyed from London to Cairo to better understand the hieroglyphic writing I had discovered relating to Nyarlathotep, and I had read of Arkham while on the ship from Gibraltar. When Professor Harvey Walters of the Miskatonic University tracked me down to the embassy in Cairo, I accepted his invitation to visit him in Arkham, and journeyed by transatlantic steamer as quickly as I could. I was on edge the whole time. Walter's voice had sounded haggard and concerned, and when I arrived in Massachusetts, I felt a foreboding of what was to come well before I reached the accursed town of Arkham. Once I did, my skin came alive with an unease unlike any I had felt before. The town seemed to exude an eldritch darkness, even though I arrived at least two hours before sunset. I found the professor at the university. He was hunched over a book which he read with a fevered expression on his face. The shadows around his eyes spoke of long nights with little sleep. He greeted me curtly, and then held up a piece of parchment upon which he had scrawled a symbol. Seeing it lightened my heart, even as I was blasted by the strength of its power, my mind reeling as I struggled to comprehend what it was. Walters picked up an old book that reeked of some foul herbal blend I could not identify. Then he nodded to me and led the way out of the university. What had begun as an academic study into this Nyarlathotep was going to take me somewhere that was completely alien to me. Arkham Horror is a game that I truly adore. When I was deciding which game to feature in my first episode of Once Upon a Die, I happened to have a conversation with Jonathan Moriarty, who may be known to you as the principal host of the Snakes cast and a regular contributor to the Dice Tower. He gave me a great piece of advice, to choose the game that most inspired me to do the show in the first place. That game is Arkham Horror. I would like to extend my thanks to Jonathan at this point, as it is thanks to that conversation that many of the ideas I am going to be implementing from now on have come into being.
Arkham Horror was the second game I purchased when I got into gaming. It is good for one to eight players, and I have thoroughly enjoyed every solo game I have played so far. Just as much, in fact, as the multiplayer ones. The game is thematic either way. With several players, you can each roleplay a different character with different behaviour and game choices. On your own, you get to create your own story and decide how every character will interact with every other, if they do so at all. To give you an idea of what to expect, each player takes on one of several investigators who are each looking into the mysteries of Arkham for their own reasons. Each investigator has a backstory on the reverse side of their character sheet. You manipulate your character's skills to determine their focuses for that round. For example, you cannot move at your fastest pace and be efficient at sneaking past monsters. You move around Arkham with events happening both in the locations you enter, drawn from neighbourhood-specific decks, and in the town as a whole, drawn from the Mythos deck. You may also enter gates to other worlds and have encounters there. Then a gate may open and monsters spawn, The monsters move according to a clever symbol system that may leave some in place, or have some moving straight towards you. And something happens to further the will of the Great Old Ones. This is almost always bad. The aim is to clear the board of gates, very tricky indeed, seal six gates, the usual win, or to defeat the Great Old One in battle. Possibly the most common ending, but a harder win than the gate-sealing method, at least in my experience. If you choose to play on your own, I recommend taking three characters to control, at least to start with. This gives you a good chance to cover the board, close gates, and take care of the encroaching monsters, but also leaves a challenge. The first time I tried a solo game, which happened to be my first ever game, I played with two characters and found it very tough indeed. I came down to the final battle with Ithaca, the great old one that I was facing, and the result of the game hinged on a single die roll. If I rolled a six, I would win. Naturally, I rolled a two, and Ithaca's icy wind spread across Arkham over the remains of my devoured investigators. I had been playing for almost five hours, and felt in no way as though the game had gypped me, or that I had wasted the time. Rather, it was the end of a titanic struggle, and one that left me hungry for the next encounter. The only time I played with a single investigator, I could not keep up with the number of gates opening, and Azathoth awoke and destroyed the world. In the game featured in this episode, I was fortunate enough to draw both an Elder Sign and the Find Gate spell for Harvey as part of his initial random allotment of spells and items. This should make it easy for him to escape immediately from the first gate he entered, and immediately seal it. Of course, things never go quite to plan, and the first gate that came into being was guarded by an Elder Thing that would end up not moving for seven turns, and which Harvey had absolutely no hope of defeating in combat or sneaking past. Harvey took us to the university library to try to find a particular book he was looking for which he believed would help with our investigation, but was accosted by the librarian. She berated him for not returning books and told him to pay a fine. Blustering, he made several excuses and left hurriedly. He glanced at me with a surprisingly devilish grin and shrugged. We left the library and he used the university's motor car to get us to Hibbs Roadhouse, where he said we were to meet up with a detective who he had crossed paths with during the course of his investigation. When we arrived, however, we were greeted by a scene of visceral destruction. Bodies lay strewn across the floor, half-chewed as if by some rabid animal of proportions far greater than seemed natural. We need to get out of here. I had barely managed the sentence when the perpetrator of the foul crime came around the corner. I did not know what it was that I looked upon, but it was terrible indeed. It was enormous, easily bigger than a bear, 
and walked hunched over upon its two hind limbs. Its arms split at the elbow, and each ended in two paws, either one larger than a dinner plate. Its vast head, as big as a barrel, peered at us with eyes set either side of a moor that stretched from top to bottom of what I suppose was its face, rather than side to side, and which was filled with sharp fangs. Harvey began muttering something, reading from his old book which he had laid upon the table. He gestured in the air before him and shouted out, I saw him reel a little and clutch at his head, but nothing seemed to happen. Then the beast lowered its head and rushed the professor. Its own complete silence as it charged unnerved me, and I backed away from it for that reason as much as any other. Even as I opened my mouth to shout at Harvey, he threw something liquid at it. The creature writhed as though bathed in acid, stopped its charge, and thrashed about itself. One of its four flailing paws caught Harvey, and he was thrown to one side. Finally, the flailing stopped, and the creature slumped slowly to the ground, unmoving. Harvey tossed me the flask he had emptied, and I saw that he had scratched the words, Blessed Water, onto its surface. I sat next to him, and we both stopped for a moment, breathing hard but did not have long to rest. Black smoke began pouring out of a corner behind the bar. I grabbed Harvey's arm and pointed to it. He pulled me down behind the bar and we crouched there. I made to speak, but found the professor's hand over my mouth. We waited in silence. I could not tell what had appeared in the roadhouse with us, but Harvey looked terrified when I glanced at him. With a sprightliness with which I would not have credited a man as old as he, he crawled away and around the bar to be as far as possible from whatever dread thing had joined our company. I followed him, and he gestured that we should make a dash for the door in a moment. I nodded, and he reached up behind us onto the bar. He managed to grab a bottle without making a sound, and then threw it as far back into the bar as he could. The sound of the beast retreated into the roadhouse and the two of us dashed for the door as fast and as quietly as possible. The Hound of Tindalos is possibly the most thematic creature in the base game and has provided a couple of entertaining stories in the games I have played. Rather than moving space by space around the streets of Arkham, as the other creatures do, this beast warps through time and space to the closest investigator within an Arkham location and therefore proves that you are not safe by staying away from the streets In this instance, a gate to another world had opened in Independence Square and disgorged a hound into the world. It moved immediately in the same Mythos phase and appeared in the roadhouse with Harvey Walters, who managed to evade it that phase and had to spend a clue token to evade it again in his own movement phase so that he could move away, since the fight with the Gug had left him devoid of anything to fight with. It is moments like this when you are frantically trying to escape the thing that is hunting you down that contribute to the tension of some of the best turns in a game of Arkham Horror. Just as with that encounter that drops you to a single stamina or sanity remaining, or the gate that opens and puts the penultimate doom token on the Great Old One's track, the last of which wakes it up. This is particularly scary with Azathoth. Most Great Old Ones can be fought by the investigators, though winning is incredibly hard, as I mentioned. However, if Azathoth wakes up, The world is destroyed, and the investigators lose. End of game. A quick note about game mechanics, which relates to the storytelling. Fantasy Flight frequently uses the successes idea. You roll a number of dice equal to your appropriate skill, and any fives or sixes rolled are successes. Other results are failures. In Arkham Horror, you may be blessed, permitting a success on fours as well. 
or cursed, restricting successes only to sixes. This mechanic adds to the tension of the game. Rarely in Lovecraft's work do his investigators come out on top, defeating or otherwise evading the terror that torments them. Playing a game where you only have a 1 in 3 chance of success on each roll of a die may be seen as being a little bit tough to some, but lends itself well to this idea that Lovecraft fostered that these great old ones really are going to win eventually and we are only postponing the inevitable, and it is a very strong component of this game. Anyway, back to the game, and if I thought Harvey had escaped from that hound, then I was sorely mistaken. There was a Shoggoth roaming the streets just south of him, and so I instead rushed off the streets and straight into my own doom. I do not know how many back streets we ran down, but I could see that the professor could not keep up with his own pace. I was truly lost in the winding alleys of Arkham, when he suddenly pulled me into the side door of what turned out to be a diner. It was dingy inside, and a lone man sat in the booth towards the back, drinking a mug of something steaming hot. He had his head down, and paid us no heed as we entered. A gramophone on the counter rang forth an upbeat jazz tune, aesthetically at odds with the rest of the environment. The proprietress, a woman Harvey referred to as Velma, came over and placed two mugs in front of us, filling them with black coffee. Her eyes seemed slightly vacant to me, and she did not speak as she followed through mechanically with her process. Then she turned and walked away. Harvey was breathing heavily from his exertion, and I could feel my own heart racing. For a brief moment, I thought that we could relax, but I was suddenly overcome with a sense of foreboding. I could not pinpoint it to begin with. And then I heard that sound again. I whipped my head around just in time to see a long proboscis of some sort slam into Velma's head. The thing pulsed, and I could only guess that it was either pumping something into Velma's body or sucking something out. I could feel bile rising in my throat, but adrenaline kicked in and then all I could think about was escape. I pulled Harvey to his feet and began to run for the door. There was no hiding from the thing this time. I thought we were going to make it, but there was a smacking sound as I pushed through the front door. Harvey suddenly became a much heavier weight in my arms, and I saw that the thing's proboscis had struck him in the side. It had failed to gain a purchase, and I dragged the professor after me as we hurried away from the diner. I prayed that the accursed beast would stay there and feast upon the others rather than chase us. And then I realised what I was hoping for, and my faith in my own humanity was lost. Whatever was happening now, it was taking away the very essence that made us good people, and turning us into terrified shadows of ourselves. I prayed that we would get to the hospital in time for me to save a life, and do one good deed that day. So Harvey was out of commission. He had no defence against the hound, which walked straight after him into Velma's diner, and had the last of his stamina drained. As long as this does not happen at the same time as an investigator losing all of their sanity, they go straight to St Mary's Hospital and regain one stamina, though losing some items and clues and any retainer they might have. The same is true of sanity, though if they lose that they go to Arkham Asylum instead. If this happens in an otherworld encounter, they are lost in time and space instead of moving to the other locations and return later, though they still lose the clues, items and retainer. This means that it is rare for an investigator actually to be out of the game, though it can happen. This does happen if both sanity and stamina are reduced to zero at once, or if either maximum value reaches zero. In this case, a player discards all of their cards, 
draws a new random investigator, and starts playing with them with their initial draw materials, as if at the beginning of the game. This means that the story always continues. It may well set you back substantially, especially if you had built up a supply of clues necessary to seal gates around Arkham, or weapons to fight monsters. But you still have a chance. And let's face it, it was always only a chance to begin with, right? Investigators can be devoured by Great Old Ones in a final battle, and in that case, they are out of the game. This is the only point of player elimination. However, at that point in the game, the others will either win or lose very shortly. A final battle against a Great Old One does not last long, one way or the other. I left the hospital briefly to visit the old curiosity shop, but when I returned, Harvey had checked himself out. No one had seen him exit, though once I questioned the nurses, one did admit to giving him a scroll as he left, which she said had some words on it that she could not read and made her feel funny. She knew Harvey from the university, and had thought he could help. I rushed out after the professor, but I had no idea where to look. I wandered the uptown streets for a while, but did not find him. However, I did get a glimpse of something more worrying. There were lights coming from the woods that bordered Arkham, and I saw distant figures congregating at the outskirts of the town as well. I decided to do a little of my own investigating, and wandered in that direction. It took some time, but I finally got a good vantage point to see down the hill without being seen in turn. There were indeed many people out there. They wore black robes, and one was carrying a long pole in ceremonial fashion. They looked to me, for all the world, like they were members of some kind of cult. There was a sudden sound of shouting nearby, and I turned just in time to hide myself from a couple of youths who came out of the edge of the woods and threw a figure to the ground. They went back in, and I waited a couple of moments before approaching the man. It was Harvey, beaten almost senseless once again, though this time by forces very much of this world. I was horrified that such a thing could occur with all that was going on, but it also gave me a stark perspective. Perhaps not everybody was as susceptible to the terrible events as the Professor and I, or indeed, as aware of them. Certainly there seemed to be less panic in the city than one might have thought. I pulled a hunk of bread from my bag which I had been saving for... I don't know what, and gave it to Harvey, helping him to pull off small chunks that he could eat. He regained his strength slowly, and nodded his thanks to me. The challenge of playing a character like Harvey is that he is quite weak physically. While he can sneak around reasonably well, his strength is in his mental constitution and his ability to fling spells around. Unfortunately, he had drawn little of use when it came to any kind of combat. The investigators in Arkham Horror begin with sanity and stamina statistics that add up to ten. These can be two fives, a six and a four, or a seven and a three. Harvey has only three stamina, and so does not do well in a fight. In this case, I drew an encounter at the woods that caused him to lose two stamina when he only had two left. Fortunately, I had the food item that allows one point of stamina damage to be negated. In a moment of great delight for me, however, the reason for Harvey's temporary disappearance in the narrative I am offering here is that he entered a gate to the Great Hall of Celiano, and used his Fine Gate spell and an Elder Sign item to close the gate almost immediately. We began to head back into town. Harvey was slowly recovering, though he was limping now, and our movement was substantially reduced. We made one single detour, and that would prove to be the most personally harrowing moment I experienced throughout the whole ordeal. Harvey wanted to check out the old building known to the locals as the Witch House, near the French Hill streets. 
We headed there, but on the way up the winding lane to the building, there was a sudden burst of scintillating energy, and the professor was pulled from this world in front of me, an expression of surprise and dismay on his face. I fell back to the ground, almost unable to believe what I had just seen. I stared at the spot where the professor had been, horrified to have lost him, and relieved, and guilty about feeling so, that I had not been dragged with him to wherever he might have gone. I sat there and tried to process everything, feeling the edges of my mind fraying and drifting away from me. It seemed like hours later, though it was probably only ten minutes, when Harvey walked back into this world as though he were being drawn in by some cosmic artist. First an arm and a leg, then his body and head, and finally the rest of him. He was drenched in water, but seemed otherwise not too different from when he had left. I stood up and reached out to hug the man, so relieved was I to see him back safely, when, with a wail, he was gone again. This time it was at least an hour before he returned. I paced around, wondering whether to go for help or wait for the professor to return. I was terrified that he would not that he would be trapped forever in some strange other place that no one might be able to follow him to. Finally, however, he came back once again. If anything, he was wetter still, and now he looked exhausted. His eyes were half-closed and he shambled rather than walked. He kept repeating the same word over and over again. Relia. 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 I had no idea what it might mean. I took off my jacket and wrapped it around him, sitting him on a tree stump by the path. He continued to mutter the word again and again. I ran back to the streets away from the witch house to see if I could see anyone that might be able to help. But the streets were deserted. I ran back again, and Harvey looked as though he had fallen asleep. But he jerked his head up as I came near. He opened his mouth to say something. And again, he was gone. The expression on his face was one of pain, and the faint cry that reached my ears seemed as though it were not a cry of wishing this all to stop through ending itself, but through his own death. I sat down and wept. I did not know what else to do. I felt as though I was witnessing the very life being flayed from my new friend by a cruel, barbed whip. In his absence, I took on his pain, and felt myself giving in to despair. He returned once more. I looked up, expecting to see him fall to the ground, but he walked with a new purpose that I had not seen since before he'd been attacked at the diner, and his wound appeared to have closed. He bade me come with him, and set off towards the merchant district. In what was the most frustrating, and one of the most thematic moments of any game I have played of Arkham Horror, Harvey came in for some serious punishment. He had indeed moved to the witch house when a gate opened on it and sucked him through to Relia. He had no elder sign and only two clue tokens, so there was no way of sealing the gate, which requires five clues. He fought through Relia and returned to the witch house, closing the gate in his encounter phase. However, since he could not seal it, that very Mythos phase, another gate opened on the witch house and he was pulled back into Relia once more. Yet again he fought through and returned, only for exactly the same process to happen again, this time transporting him to Yugoth. If a gate opens on top of an investigator while they are at a location, they have no choice but to be dragged through to the other world in question. Harvey had only one sanity left at this point, so I could not use his find gate spell to get out, as it costs a sanity to use. 
Had he been able to seal the gate, that would have also prevented any new gates from opening on that location, but as I say, he could not. Incidentally, the one character that is immune to this problem was actually in the game, ironically. Kate Winthrop has a gadget that stops gates opening on her location, or monsters from spawning there. Of course, the game would never be nice enough to pull this trick on her. Finally, Harvey returned from Yugoth, typically with a card in play that reduced the number of clues required to seal a gate to three. Remember, he had two. But he managed to get away in the following turn. He did not actually witness the final gate seal of the game. Joe and Kate returned simultaneously from the Plateau of Lung to close that. But for narrative purposes, we're going to take him there anyway. We made it across the short body of water to what the locals referred to as the Unvisited Isle, just in time to see the end of everything. There was a hideous beast on the small island, an amorphous thing of tentacles and two enormous wings that bracketed a rotund body. It was engaged in battle with a man in a suit wielding a pistol and a sword. He was howling at the beast and swinging and firing wildly with what seemed to me to be little or no discipline. Even as I watched, the beast roared at him and he began a high-pitched, laughing scream that sent a chill through me. Then the man ran away from us and disappeared, still occasionally swinging the sword at the empty air. As the beast began to turn towards Harvey and me, I started to panic. But then another figure came into being. A woman stepped out of a gate and immediately began drawing the symbol that Harvey had once shown me in the ground in front of her. It obviously took effort, despite the pliable, damp nature of the earth, which softened a little as I trod upon it. I wondered if the very shape itself somehow refused to be drawn in the presence of that horrific creature, or whether it was just an effort to inscribe it in the first place. I felt the same surge of power wash over me as she neared completion that I had felt when Harvey had shown me the symbol back in the university. I watched in fascination as she completed the final connection and the symbol flared into bright blue light. I was almost overwhelmed with the pure force of it, and then there was a loud crack and the beast's roars were suddenly silenced. It thrashed about itself, somehow muted, and began to fade away. At the last second, one of its tentacles caught the woman and threw her what must have been fifty feet towards us. Once the creature had completely vanished, I rushed forward and tried to save her, but her neck had been snapped by the force of the blow, and she lay there motionless. I felt a great weight lift from my shoulders as the beast vanished, and a tension that I had not realised I had been carrying both in my body and my mind relaxed. I looked down at the woman and gently closed her eyes hoping that she might know, somehow, that whatever doom had threatened Arkham had apparently departed as a result of her final action on this world. I expressed this thought to Harvey, and he looked at me seriously. For now, was all he said. The ending of the game was, in all honesty, a little less thrilling than I describe it. Kate Winthrop's turn was first, and she exited the gate onto the unvisited aisle and immediately closed and sealed it, ending the game. However, I played out the rest of the turn out of curiosity. Joe had gone into a gate to the Plateau of Lung from another location at the same time that Kate entered one from the unvisited isle. They fought their way through it, having their own individual encounters, and emerged at the same time. Investigators can leave another world through any gate that is open to the world that they are in. So I brought them both out on the unvisited isle, though only Kate had the tokens to seal a gate. I kept Joe there on the off chance that she didn't manage to. However, she did, and the game, as I said, was over.
When I played the turn out, however, Joe managed to kill the dimensional shambler that was on the island, but needed to use the whiskey he had held for the entire game to avoid losing sanity when he failed the horror check against it. He then fought the Elder Thing, and had to use the other whiskey he had picked up in a roadhouse encounter. He must have been pretty drunk by this point. But the Elder Thing sent him insane anyway, and I removed his token to Arkham Asylum. Kate attempted to fight with minimal weapons, and easily avoided the sanity loss, but was not up to the challenge, and was taken out by the Elder Thing, and removed to St Mary's Hospital. While all this was going on, Harvey had returned to his starting location, the administration building of the Miskatonic University, unable to do anything remotely constructive. For the third time in the game, he drew the card that said he should pass a will check in order to earn a retainer from the dean to write a manuscript for the university, something which would give him two dollars every turn. He had failed the first two times. Did he get it this time? It was the last roll of the game. Of course he didn't. So that is my narrative take on a game of Arkham Horror, deliberately following a single character through his trials while the other two had theirs elsewhere. They did cross paths throughout the game, but apart from a couple of handovers of items, none of those encounters were particularly interesting. I hope that you enjoyed this story. The next game or two will be solo, but with a little less focus on multiple characters. By the time I come back to one of the multiple character games, I do hope to be able to include a couple of other people with me on the podcast to provide voices for alternate characters, but we will see how things progress. A note on single versus multiplayer. The game does not differ very much, in my opinion. With more players, you gain the social aspect which I mentioned earlier. You work together as a team to try and defeat this thing, deciding what roles you might take on, but at the same time bearing the survival of your own investigator in mind. You might also find that the game takes a little longer. You can work things out in your head for all the characters when playing on your own, and you get into a rhythm of moving everyone around quickly. Naturally, when you're playing with other people, if they are paying attention to your turn, they might not have thought through everything that they want to do on their own. However, this is not a major difference, I have to stress that, and I adore this game both as a single and a multiplayer game. If you enjoyed this podcast, I would very much appreciate your support. I am not requesting financial aid at this time, but a Geek Gold tip on Board Game Geek would be most appreciated. I will be posting a thread in the podcasts forum to state that this episode is live, and you can track me down there, and my nickname on BGG is Perfect Imperfection, all one word. I am aiming to work towards setting up a guild on BGG, so helping me to earn the 10 Geek Gold required would be a very generous and appreciated gesture. This has been Once Upon a Die. Thank you for listening to this first episode. I would love to know what you think. If you are listening to this within a few months of its release, please contact me using the contact page on my website, www.dragonliterature.com, or on the forum thread I have just mentioned in the Board Game Geek Podcasts forum, and let me know your thoughts. Share your experiences of the game, or tell me if you would like a particular game to be covered in this podcast, bearing in mind that I do have a few lined up for the next couple. If this is sometime later than that, hopefully there will be a guild set up on Board Game Geek by now, and you would be welcome to join the conversation there. Until the next episode, again, I thank you for listening, and keep rolling those dice until the game is done. Once Upon a Die is a Dragon Literature production, presented and edited by David A. Xavier. This podcast is not affiliated with any games companies, and copyright for all game characters and materials remains with respective owners. Most sound effects sourced at freesound.org, and all have Creative Commons Zero licenses. Follow me on Twitter, at DragonLiterate, on facebook.com forward slash literate dragon, and on my website, dragonliterature.com. The theme music is Distortion in Blues by FMGW, licensed purchased from audiojungle.net.
Random fact of the episode. Howard Phillips Lovecraft did not actually create the term Cthulhu mythos himself. Much as with the Hound of Tindalos, which I was talking about earlier, this term was created by one of the members of his writing circle. In the case of the Hound of Tindalos, this was Frank Belknap Long, who first wrote of them in a short story entitled The Hounds of Tindalos in 1929. Lovecraft included them in his own story, The Whisperer in the Darkness, which he wrote during 1930 and which was published in 1931. Cthulhu Mythos, which Lovecraft referred to as Yogg-Sothothery, and for the uninitiated, Yogg-Sothoth is another of the great old ones, was actually invented by August Derleth, who published Lovecraft's work after his death, and also wrote his own short stories using the same world. While his career expanded far beyond just the Cthulhu Mythos, Derleth in fact is considered by many today to be instrumental in forming the basis of what has become a cult following of Lovecraft's work. <laughs> 